Hello, friends, and welcome to So Poetry, uh, Season 5. I'm, I'm really happy to be back. Um, I, as you probably saw, um, for those of you who have been hanging out on the either Akinoga Press page or the SoundCloud page, um, things have been quiet for a couple of months. Um, I needed to take some time off, just kind of take some time off, but also I had a lot of uh, press things to do. Speaking of which... Um, I'm really, really excited uh, for this particular episode because my guest today is a poet that I've been working with for the better part of a year, um, whose uh, first collection of erasure poetry just dropped. Uh, my guest today is Jessica Hilton, um, writer of uh, Gag Order. So you want to introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're up to? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Jessica Hilton, and I actually am the MFA director at the University of Arkansas in Monticello. I have a PhD from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and I write poetry. I'm not really sure what all else you want me to say here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's cool. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I was thinking about just things to like that I have been wondering and questions to ask you. Um, and I think one of my first questions, or one of the things that I've, I'm curious about is, um, what was your MFA experience like? Well, I actually had an, I have an MA with a creative thesis oh, and okay. I don't hold a direct MFA. Oh, interesting. So what yeah. was, okay. Then what was your MA experience like? My MA was one of the best times of my life. I did it at Radford university. Um, and I had started it just because Honestly, there was a um, recruiter who just wouldn't give up on me. I was running a music store at the time and I'm selling guitars and he would come in and he'd be like, hey, we want you to come to school here. And I would be like, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he kept pestering me. I bet he came back to the store like four times and I was like, fine, I'll apply. And then um, I filled everything out and got accepted and fully funded. And it was like, okay. So um, went to this program and had just incredible supportive staff. Um, and I was in the literature track, just gonna do the traditional American lit program and um, got distracted by somebody who was attractive and enrolled in the poetry course just to be <laughs> around them. And it changed my life completely, so. Wow. So were, yeah. you, were you writing poetry before then or was that your I was a fiction writer before then oh, I wrote wow. a lot of fiction my actual thesis from my master's is a collection of short stories each one was um, from a different perspective of people who were institutionalized um, and it was furthering a, a central narrative about a, a woman who was broken and in kinds of ways um, but uh, you know throughout that process I really realized that what is most effective for me is narrative poetry because you know I, I like to tell stories and I like stories that are, are short with a punch. So mm, okay, wow. So so you 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 started writing poetry in, in grad school. In wow, Jesus. yeah. <laughs> so was that? I mean, I'm imagining that was essentially just like a crash course in like in in poetry and in in, in crafting it, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was actually with Lou Gallo. Um, he he is just an incredible guy, um, and pulls you to you know typical English professor. Come into the office, there are stacks of books everywhere, and you know maybe you can find him, maybe not. <laughs> um, and uh, just 
just spent time. I mean, I, we spent so much time outside of class, just talking poems and, you know, getting things you know, hammered down and catching up on all the things that, you know, I would have gotten in a traditional undergrad program. Um, but he was, he was phenomenal. Uh, he was actually from New Orleans and he's the one who pushed me to go to Louisiana, uh, for the, uh, PhD. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so were you looking at other PhD programs in Louisiana or was it like, cause you, is you, UL is one of the few programs that has like a creative writing PhD. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, when I was looking at grad programs for the PhD, I applied, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do because I've, I'm not somebody who likes to be categorized. Um, so I applied to nine programs, three of which were creative writing programs, um, three of which were traditional American literature programs, and three of which were digital media programs because I've always been interested in how like the arts and technology influence um, one another. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. And was what uh what about ul won out for you uh honestly it was the um the way that everything was kind of pushed uh, ul has a pretty great uh recruitment of appalachians and that folklore program that they have going on down there yeah. uh, it's pretty cool and it made me feel like you know here i am you know little hillbilly hillbilly jess that's never left home and uh, nobody's ever left home since like the 1700s and i'm gonna go and move halfway across the country um so i feeling com confident and comfortable was pretty huge for me um because i despite doing some pretty big grandiose things i'm pretty much a scaredy cat at heart so <laughs> huh that's that's really that's I feel in a, in a way that sort of mirrors how I wound up in Baltimore to an extent. Sure. Um, Cause like I, I um, for those of you listening that are unfamiliar with uh, uh, small state colleges in Southwestern Louisiana, um, UL is the University of Lafayette, uh, no, Louisiana, University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Um, there you go. Which is where, Jesus, I've, Man, I feel like my my uh, raging Cajuns ID card is going to get revoked. Um, it might. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went. I finished um, undergrad there um, and encountered I probably some of the same people that were really instrumental in your uh, in your PhD program. Absolutely. Um, the probably the most. Like I can I can remember my experience with other teachers, but I feels like my despite the fact that I didn't have a, a whole lot of interaction with her while I was at uh, UL, um, Diana Stetko feels like that is the sort of like what my memories have sort of crystallized around. Um, probably because I she she has published uh, two books with Akinoga Press, um, but she is just a fucking titan of a person. Um, yes. and, but anyway, so I, once I finished UL, um, I kind of didn't, part of me was like, I don't really know what to do. And another part of me was like, I'm, I'm just going to go to the MFA program. Um, and I applied to, fuck, I think like three or four of them. Um, and UB was the only one that accepted me. So I was like, okay, well, I, I guess that makes, <laughs> makes my decision of where to go super easy. Um, <laughs> But it was one of those, like, I, I'm also, I think, uh, scaredy cat at heart. Um, and I only will, I will only do most things if sort of pushed into it. 
Um, but it was a really... In a way, it was it was frightening because it was for the like being on my own really for the first time in my life, um, and you know like finding an apartment to rent, registering all of my classes, um, like moving to a new state into a, a, an apartment by myself, having to make friends in a new place that I've you know like nobody I've had there is no no uh, no contact point or no contact person that I have in this new place. Um, and it is just, you know, it's like moving to a new city in a new part of the country that is radically different than where I spent the vast majority of my, I guess, formative years. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a level of like, I don't, I don't know if this was, this was your experience of that, the sort of like peace to it when you know it's like, oh yeah, it's like this is where I'm going and I will figure out like whatever the hell happens, it will be more or less, it's like, I'm you know, it's going to work out how it works out because this is where I'm going to be and this is the thing that I'm going to do. And you know, that's it. You know, it's like, that's, you sort of sign it and you dot it and that's it. Um, as opposed of to being so riddled with anxiety and so riddled with just uncertainty of like, you know, I mean, I, I definitely was, but there was that sort of calming center point of like, Oh no, well, yeah, it's like, this is what I'm doing. And you know, that's just, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Um, did you did you have any of that when you when you moved down to Louisiana or was it was it still a lot of like oh shit this is you know <laughs> this is a <laughs> no I think we had very different experiences there <laughs> um, but I also was uh, struggling when I left Virginia um, with my own sexuality uh, and so I mm. moved to the deep south to come out as a lesbian because that's what <laughs> rational human beings do. Um, <laughs> And as I was down there trying to figure my own life out, um, I was also playing a lot of roller derby and I was making a lot of um, adrenaline fueled decisions that were probably not the smartest ones. Um, So no, Louisiana was very difficult for me for the first like two or three years that I was there. Um, Mm -hmm. Mentioned Diana Stetko and uh, she was the one person on the faculty who took interest in me actually, ironically after my first back surgery and I was sitting there and she was like, hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I, I came into class like the day after the surgery and she was like, you are, you are an odd one. And um, after that, we kind of connected <laughs> and uh, my life got exponentially better um, because she really stepped up as a mentor and was there throughout, um, you know, willing to push me and willing to tell me when I was getting off track. And um, I, I, I need a strong hand as a mentor. So it was, mm. um, she was invaluable to me. Yeah. Yeah, I fuck. I mean, I, I, I wish that I would have been like. I wish that I would have been at UL as either an MFA or a PhD during the time that I was there as an undergrad, because um, I I feel like it was right on the cusp of of some sort of major changes that happened to the university and just like personnel shifting and stuff like that, but. Um, to to have been there when Diana was like head of the program I would have been I mean I know it was <laughs> it was kind of hell for her um yeah but I it feels like that would have been like such an amazing experience to 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 have like her as the like the captain of the vessel of 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 you know pulling you along through this this really very intensive very pressurized uh academic pursuit um, yeah, yeah, we, but we were all for her, you know, um, oh, I actually yeah. did 
find the campaign buttons for the department head when she ran for department head for her. Um, we were, there was just such energy in the, the program and it changed so drastically when she and uh, Shelly Ingram took over the department. Um, it was uh, just beautiful. Yeah, so. yeah. Oh, then I, I would like to say that um, I don't I don't know if the community was still there, but at least when I was there in undergrad, there was a pretty thriving uh, lesbian community that I somehow got ado- adopted by. Um, there was like three or four people that live all lived in the same house that was the sort of epicenter of of the like the sort of burgeoning scene um, that all decided that they were going to be my friends or that I was going to be their friends. And it's like, OK, cool. This is fantastic. Um, <laughs> I hung out. One of them made like a, a some sort of fish dinner one night when I was hanging out there with them, and I was like, "This is this is weird, but this is really this is really fun." Um, anyway, um, hmm. So, based on what you said before about liking narrative poetry um, and you know, like being able to tell stories that are short with a punch, um, I I feel like. Um, the erasure poetry collection uh, that you did is a pretty drastic departure from maybe the poetry that you normally do? Well, sort of. Um, I actually started doing erasure poetry, well, uh, with my dissertation. Um, When you're writing your dissertation, a creative dissertation, you're still required to do a an introduction, which is critical introduction, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, 60 to 100 pages of... um, you know, scholarly writing. And um, I was kind of annoyed because it's like, you know, uh, you get a, your PhD is actually a generalist program. So it's, it's technically, I don't have a PhD in creative writing. I have a PhD in English with an emphasis on creative writing. Gotcha. Um, and so um, I was kind of annoyed because it's like people who were getting like a PhD in English with the emphasis on American literature, they didn't have to turn in like a chat book of poems. So it's like, well, why am I being expected to right. write in their voice, but they're not doing it in ours. And right. that's just kind of part of the divide of, you know, the traditional literature type or, or comp rep even programs versus the creative writers is we, we are expected to be able to code switch and, and they are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking for a way to get around that because rules are not something that I'm a big fan of. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and what is academic writing, except, you know, at its core, you know, you're framing your argument within somebody else's language. Right. And so it, going by that definition, I took Wallace Stegner's um, collection. It's on writing, I believe. Um, which is all about, you know, the approach to creative writing pedagogy and what the history of it. And, I did a large scale erasure of his work um, because I was using his words to get my point across. um, And I was advocating that that should count as my critical introduction. That is fantastic. It didn't work, (laughs) but uh, it did add an extra chapter to the dissertation um, on erasure poetry. uh, And it really made me intrigued about how the ins and outs of how it works and when is it effective and when is it not? Um, And, uh, I just, I've kind of became enamored with it since then. And it's always been kind of something that I've dabbled with back and forth since. So what, how did you, how did you decide that you were going to do erasures of Trump's speeches? Well, um, 2016, when he got elected the first time, um, well, hopefully the only time. (laughs) Yes. God Um, God willing. (laughs) Powers that be willing. I was kind of in a, a topsy-turvy place. You know, I was, I was finishing my um, 
finishing the degree. I got the got the degree in 2016. I was engaged, uh, and that was starting to unravel. And I was looking at um, jobs, and I had no idea where I was going or where I would be. And um, so, like writing traditional narrative poetry for me was very difficult at that time because I didn't have anything that I really wanted to say because everything was just too high pressure, high stress. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, everything was changing and everything was so stressful. And it was like, I got to say something and I got to do something. I can't just sit here and not. And um, I started reading a lot of protest poetry and, and to, I think protest poetry is so important and so incredible. Um, but I couldn't figure out a way to add to it that wouldn't sound um, cliche or doing what everybody else was doing. And I remember I was sitting on the couch one night and he was talking and I was just like, no, you need to shut up. How do I make this man <laughs> shut up? And I was like, oh my gosh. So I got a Sharpie and um, stunk up the whole house. And I remember my partner at the time walking in and being like, are you okay? Because I was definitely in a manic fit <laughs> and there was Sharpies and pages everywhere. Um, and it was like, I finally found a way to speak and silence this guy at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that was it what what was the i guess the multiple experiences like of so i oh maybe maybe this is a there's a previous question i should ask like when you when you write or i guess when you cultivate erasure poetry are you reading the source material deeply or are you scanning through to just find things that sort of like bubble up out of the text intuitively like what what is the um, what is the process for you in in creating that type of poetry? And I guess it, is it depending upon the text? Does it change? Um, yes and no. Uh, you know, I, I want to be familiar with the speech as it was before I start. Um, but when I'm actually looking to to find the language within it, I try really hard not to start reading it. Um, and to say that I'm fully successful, that would be lying because there are definitely times that you'll get going and you're like, ah, and then you get really mad and it's like, that, that you got to stop. Yes. Um, but uh, for me, it's it's looking for individual words because he repeats a lot of the same words over and over and over. Like linguistically looking at what he does, it's, it's horrendous. Um, and... Uh, trying to stay away from just making your own work seem the same too became problematic after you got very familiar with how often he repeats the same phrases, the same language, because he's trying to reinforce his own narrative that goes against anything that's actual reality. Yes. Um, so for me, it was looking for where he stayed on whatever the original speech writer had written because he ad libs. It's, it's awful. Yes. But if he, some of his speech writers were actually pretty clever. So if you could use some of their words and tie it together um, to, you know, some of the other, other language, you, you could find some things that were pretty interesting, I think. Hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming that there was, I mean, kind of, I guess, like you mentioned before, the, the ability to both speak and silence him, like the, a very, uh, like viscerally satisfying, uh, sensation and feeling of, of physically blacking out his, his words. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, you go through a lot of Sharpies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> admittedly, after about the first six, I started just kind of um, squaring the words that I wanted um, <laughs> just to save a little money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I I definitely feel felt or experienced the same. The same thing, and it was it was really interesting. Um, I actually doing the layout for this book um, because like you 
I think I don't know. I don't remember if you sent them to me as like uh, Word docs or as PDFs, but they they came pre-redacted, um, and then I had to like copy and paste them into InDesign, and then I had to re-redact them um, because there wasn't a, a way to 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 uh, transfer them being previously or like already coming in being blacked out. Um, and it took a little bit to figure out exactly how to do that. I think I wound up doing, it was either an underline or like a strike through that I just made super, super thick and offset a little bit. So it was like right dead center in the word. Um, but to have to like go, th- go back through and just like black out everything except for, you know, like a word or two on a page and just to, to thumb through and to see like how much like how much reduction there was in these poems and like the you know in in a a five page let's say seven pages of a speech there's maybe 20 words at most Mm -hmm. in a poem that's just like the because i i know that generally in in erasure poetry like you are it is it is heavily reductive that you know you're maybe getting a word or a couple of phrases in a in a page, um, but it just it felt like the the sheer volume of things being blacked out was way more than I've experienced when I'm doing my own erasure poetry, and it was that level of like I don't know that I, it felt poignant to me in, in some way that there was so much that was being silenced and blacked out and just the the sort of little pinpricks of light almost you know like constellations or stars that just sort of appeared out of the sea of of darkness um well i agree with you and that's one of the things that i was so grateful for you um and your press because it's uh hard to find an editor who's willing to publish so much blackness um (laughs) because it, it it is it's a lot of ink it's a lot of resources and i had a couple editors approach me like hey well we'll do this but let's um lose this and just do it like a found poem and stagger it out and i mean I, I think you lose your punch that way. Oh, um, yeah, of course. It loses the impact. And I'm not trying to say that other people haven't done incredible poems that way. They have. Um, it's just, uh, for me, what I didn't want this volume to be that. Right, so. yeah. And I, it's like, you know, I feel like especially because because of the source material and because of who, I mean, he has speech writers, but, you know, like who the source material was generated for and the sort of persona or just... Uh, presence that 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 he has it like you would lose so much especially because he like trump touts as himself as being you know like the smartest the most clever has the best words you know like there's there's something really meaningful to see all of that just blackness essentially what turns into like empty space Mm -hmm. or like negative space and i was i'm I'm still trying to think of a way to do this. Um, I might, like, I've been wanting to do broadsides for a long, long time, and I, I feel like it would be really amazing to have a, like, I don't know, like, two by three foot piece of poster board with the entire speech written out on it. Um, mm, that would be great. Because I... I'm grateful that it is it, it is in book form, and I, I like the, how it... Um, like the feeling of the book, like the physical book, that it feels like it's it's a collection of speeches, which is something that I'm I'm I really 
uh, I really like. But I feel like the fact that that you have to thumb through pages, you still kind of lose the effect. I feel like you would really see the effect if you had the like each of these speeches on just one sheet of paper, and then you just see like the little the little bits of white that pop through. Yeah, that sounds um, amazing. But I, it's 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 a thought that I've had since the very beginning of because I I. I I don't remember if I floated this idea to you originally, but I was thinking like one of the one of the very very first ideas that I had for this collection was um, just a series or just a, a assemblage of big pieces of poster board like that. Like that would be the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, like not bound. You just you get it. They're sort of tied together, and then that's like that's the book. Um, yeah. But I couldn't I couldn't think of a way to make that um, like cost effective or um feasibly printed um (laughs) there's there's some definitely some limitations within that but i don't know i might i might be able to track down a printer that could print something that big and and have that as like a, a special um I don't know. I mean, if he if he's if he gets voted out, I will I will definitely throw some resources into that as a a, a uh, 2020 celebr or like inauguration day. Do it. Do some sort of like amazing sale where you can get a bunch of these things for super cheap. Hey, um, that sounds fabulous. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I I i I really appreciate just in general like erasure poetry in, in the the times that i've I've worked with it because um, in a weird way it kind of reminds me of writing haiku um, in that so if you view haiku as a like you have an experience or you encounter something probably something mundane probably you know like something that you just happen to notice that's you know not not garnering a lot of attention and you sort of distill it down into its essence you know you strip away all this other all these other extemporaneous things and you you sort of boil it down to the you get the image that is the essence of the experience i feel like erasure poetry does a similar thing that you are i mean you're not you're not necessarily like the erasure poem that you come up with is not necessarily like the essence of this piece but you are like reducing the the context or you're reducing the sort of surrounding context of this of these words down to just sort of an uh an essence maybe or like there is there is this really beautiful amazing moment that happens in in sort of the midst of the rest of of these words um and that's always been a really um I don't know, like a really enjoyable experience to like to be sitting with a page and to suddenly like have that spark of like, oh, shit, there's like a poem lurking somewhere in here Mm -hmm. Um, and to be able to like chisel it out and to have suddenly it's like, oh, there's this weird thing that like I didn't necessarily write, but I found and, you know, like it. I don't know. It feels like it, it flexes different parts of your like your creative muscles to do that sort of work versus writing something wholly from you know from the the ether or from you know from new <laughs> yeah so um do you feel like your poetry has changed since uh finishing like the mfa and the phd 
I guess, in like the, the four-ish intervening years? Um, yeah. Um, well, for the most part, gag order has been my, my baby and that is for <laughs> most of my, my time. Um, but, uh, it's been, it, the last four years have been difficult, right? You know, they talk about, um, when you finish your, your big dissertation, you finish your big work, um, that you typically go through a little bit of a dry spell. Um, mm-hmm. and admittedly for the first couple of years, that's, that's where I've been. Um, you know, cause you're on the job market, you're moving across the country. You know, my first job was a visiting professorship in Pennsylvania and then I moved to Arkansas. Um, so your, your life is kind of upheaved, um, to the point that like you're, you're thinking about ambitious things instead of you know creative things um <laughs> yep and uh so yeah I'm, i feel like within the last well honestly since the pandemic hit i've had some pretty major personal life changes and i i am actually writing more now than i have in years um and i am considering well i'm, I'm working on um the pre-novel stage i'm actually i think the next big project i tackle will be a novel oh shit yeah uh and it's it's a novel that i've i've wanted to write for a long time um one of the things that i've always had a complaint like from anybody it's like hey why don't you write about your your family and it's like um i wasn't ready to touch it uh and Mm -hmm. I've been spending a lot of time on Ancestry.com. I've been tracing back some roots. I've got some some things to kind of decompress. And uh, I really think that this novel is going to be helpful. Um, and, and when I say novel, I mean not necessarily in the traditional, like, you know, formulaic style. Um, I mean more of kind of like the Eileen Miles uh, Inferno poet novel. Because, um, oh, man, that, that, that novel is so great. Uh, and it's changed my life exponentially. So um, something along those lines where it's, it's almost more of a series of vignettes and flashbacks. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am. <laughs> Ooh, that, yeah. Hmm. Because that's, that's always been something. Like, I've, I've attempted to do... Um, prose throughout many times in my life similarly i've attempted to be a a runner or a jogger throughout many times in my life and i just i can't <laughs> i can't make it work um, <laughs> there is something that feels like there's it's like fundamentally anathemistic to me to, towards both running and um prose yeah yeah i can understand um but i'm really enamored with um like stories that that happen I guess it's probably just a different like I don't really I don't care about story um, I often spoil things like if there's a movie that's out that I may or may not see I will read the plot synopsis of it because you know like if if all I care about is the story I can find the story you know there's a lot of other you know like if there's there are other things in the movie that you can go see um, that just because you know what happens in the story like doesn't detract from like oh this is really cool cinematography or like oh the use of color for the symbolism is really neat or you know like how they lit this or the costuming or you know whatever there's all these other elements Mm -hmm. and i feel like with with novels and with short stories i there's so much of it it's just like i read them because i want to know what happened but there's not a ton of there's not a lot of other things that keep me sort of a, attached to the book, mm-hmm. um, because it's just you know it's like I'm reading it just to find out like what the hell happens, which I I feel like is why I gravitate towards like I I was on a big uh, Murakami kick for a long you know many numbers of years, um, 
And I appreciated, one of the things I think I appreciated a lot about the way that he writes is that his novels really aren't about like what, what actually takes place in the plot. Mm -hmm. There are all these other sort of aspects that he's hitting on and it's, it's lots of like mood setting and, you know, like experiences that, that are taking place throughout the novel and it's not so much like plot driven. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in, um, I was up in Vermont uh, a couple of years ago for a residency and I picked up uh, Maggie Smith's, um, no, Maggie Nelson's uh, Bluets. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's like, it's a sort of lyric, like a braided lyric essay in like prose poem vignette chunks um, that is very much telling a, like kind of telling a story, but is more so just like contemplative or um, I don't know, like meditating on, on these things. And it's the, it's mm-hmm. the meditations on these things and how they connect with each other that give you the sort of sense of what this is, of what the book is about, mm-hmm. um, which I, I have realized in recent years is like why I poetry happened for me and why like that's the mode of writing that I gravitate or that I like, it's really the only one that I can do because it's it's the closest to just directly conveying emotional experiences. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's like I'm not I'm not telling a story even if there's even if the poem is like narrative-ish, you know, like there I wrote one recently that I was out on a walk and I saw a bunch of robins and then I saw some other things and it made me think about shit and it's like, you know, <laughs> that as a story is a really, is a really crappy story. But if the point of it is more to convey like, oh, these are the things that I felt and like this is the experience that I want to share with you to, to try to get you into the neighborhood of feeling these things too. Um, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to tell somebody the story. I'm just going to, I'm going to draw them into this thing that I experienced and then that's, you know, that's the avenue through those, through those emotions or whatever. But so I'm, I'm really intrigued to, for, to like see how a novel kind of works out in that way of, like vignettes that like build to this thing that I mean I'm assuming that there will probably be well I mean I don't want to assume but I'm like there's probably like a sort of a at least a, a loose narrative thread that's going to happen throughout the novel right like absolutely the, yeah um one of the things that I've got going on with me right now is I am dealing with a degenerative back condition that um is likely going to leave me crippled um and um one of the things that I found along my timeline is that my great grandmother had um, similar situation and it actually oh. ended up killing her. And oh, um, so it's going to be a series of kind of vignettes of like, and, and my, I never knew my great grandmother, but um, she was the only person in my family that um, really felt like I connected to mm. uh, just from the stories about her because she came from a family that had means and she threw it all away to marry a farmer. Um, and they had nothing. Um, I mean, my grandmother would tell stories about how the fact that they, Christmas would happen and they might get an orange. Like, they, they didn't have anything. Um, but it's worth it, you know? Like, I'd throw everything away for the right person. <laughs> but, yeah. um, and so, but she, she, she and I felt very similar. My grandmother resented her and hated her um, and would frequently tell me lots of negative things that this is not how you live your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just kind of want to kind of process some of, what I'm going through with this, this failure of the body, um, but triumph of the spirit, um, and kind of interweave my story with hers. 
so that's that's kind of where this is heading. Um, and I know that sounds probably vague and egotistical at the <laughs> moment, but um, no, I mean, I, I think that that's like that to me feels like a um, like a creative nonfiction like lyric essay move um, mm-hmm. that you are. That's like it's there's there is the narrative and there is the story, but the story is the sort of avenue into the contemplations on, you know, like a, 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 a degenerative disease or like connections to family that like there is this one person in the family that you're connected to that, no, you know, it's like there is a lot of resentment around that particular person and like you know what what that means and and how that's like that i guess the sort of familial grief and trauma has like has situated and has sort of expanded or contracted or you know whatever changed throughout the years um yeah wow that's i am i'm really excited to to see what happens with that because that definitely that definitely sounds like something that I, w- I would want to read oh well thank you thank you well let's let's, let's see like you know <laughs> let's, let's get it written first <laughs> i think i think one of the other things um not to not to keep harping on on prose but i think one of the other uh reasons why i don't i can't write prose is that i can't spend so, such a long time working on a single thing um, I mean, I, there's a manuscript that I've been working on for, I guess, the better part of like two years now. Um, that, like, in and of itself is torture. Like, I want this thing done. I want it out of me. I want to be able to move on to the next thing. Um, and to have to just sit with this for such a long time, I was like, fuck, I don't even remember like the first couple of poems that I wrote for this thing. And to have like a single unified work that you know it's like that that you are that you are developing and working on just i like i don't i don't think i have the the stamina or the person whatever like creative perseverance for that <laughs> well i i'm not sure i do either but uh, <laughs> fingers crossed uh, i don't know i mean i feel like if if you have been moved enough to actually start like kind of planning and plotting it out it'll it'll happen for you i it, this feels like one of those things it's like it's it's one of those stories that that has to come out um that like you know no one else but you could write it um but hmm. so if you this is something I, I enjoy asking some of my poet guests because uh, I usually wind up having to write down a bunch of names that I don't know and to, to go check them out later. But if you had a, uh, I guess like a pantheon of poets, who would be your top, uh, who would be like top tier, like S tier for you? Oh boy. Um, the, how many do I get to choose here? Like what um, <laughs> parameters? Let's say like five to seven. Okay. Um, and they don't have to be of like all time. It could just be people that are like really moving you or really rocking your world right now. But okay. um, well, right now I've been reading. Actually, um, I've been going back to some, some things that I I, I love desperately, uh, and I've been rereading um, H. D.'s Sea Garden poems, um, written in the early nineteen twenties, Imagist uh, style. Um, 
and they're all about these. Have, are you familiar with the collection? No, I'm familiar with the poet, but I'm not super familiar with uh, with a lot of her work. Yeah. Um, well, she writes these these poems, and they're they're all about these these flowers on the shore, and they are tattered and dangerous and um you know you think that they're just about a flower but then she'll throw a pronoun shift in there and add a you and it's like holy crap you're not talking about flowers you're talking about people and it's just something about these these, these damaged flowers that are more beautiful than everything else and uh, i don't know with the pandemic and everything being dark and heavy it's i'm going back to those flowers man because if those flowers can make it maybe we can too that that feels um, like a, a mary oliver uh, sea roses move <laughs> yeah, I don't know Mary Oliver's heroes, but HD has a heroes that I know pretty Ooh. well. So. I, um, I feel like Oliver has written a couple of those. Um, let me see if I can find. Um, oh, uh, she has roses, late summer. Um, yeah, whatever. It, <laughs> because like because she does, you know. I mean. Are, are, are you familiar with uh, Oliver and her sort of motif of, of writing? Yes, I've read a couple things or a few things of hers. I haven't read, you know, extensively her whole collection. But. Okay, so she she is very much a like ambulatory poet that, you know, it's like I'm out on a walk. I see some shit on a walk. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write about the stuff I yep. encounter on a walk. Um, and she lived in Provincetown for years and years and years. So there are a lot of poems that take place, um, like her walking the, the dunes next to, I guess, like the Atlantic. I don't know if there's a, a particular body of water in Provincetown that she's, you know, like whatever the shore is. Mm -hmm. um, and she, there are lots of poems where there are like, you know, sea roses or just uh, flowers that bloom on the dunes that show up mm -hmm. in, you know, a lot of her different, her, a lot of her poems. Although I feel like in her poetry, the flowers are actually flowers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So who else besides uh, HD? Okay. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't list Sylvia Plath on my list. Um, mm. She's absolutely the first poet that I ever like fell in love with. Um, but I'm not reading her right now. <laughs> I love Plath, but like right now I'm not able to handle that. Um, yeah, that the that feels like that, that would maybe be a little a, a little heavy for right now. So, um, and Eileen Miles I mentioned earlier, uh, she's just stunning. Her work is just phenomenal. Um, and uh, I actually have a, a collection of narrative poetry that's out now, um, The Great Scissor Hunt. It was published by Headmistress Press in 2016, 17, um, I think it was 16 actually. Um, but uh, reading some of the fellow mistresses of that press has been something that's been really rewarding um, recently. And uh, they, they're just a phenomenal collection of, of lesbian poets that are out and, and doing things and active. Mary Merriam and um, Reza Dan Danberg, they're, um, they're phenomenal people, so. Very cool. Is there a, um, is there, if there is a single poet that you could throw uh, all of the shade at, um, which poet would you throw all of the shade at? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to pick a dead one because I'm absolutely not going to do that to my career. Um, <laughs> so a dead poet who I would like to throw a lot of shade at, uh, I mean, hands down, it's, Ted Hughes, um, and admittedly, it has little to do with his work. Um, it's more to do with just him as a, a dastard of a human being. Mm -hmm. um, but 
yeah, I, w- I would I would like Ted Hughes to not be remembered because of not not because his work wasn't whatever, but I mean honestly, I'm just I'm tired of bad people being remembered, uh, and he fundamentally seems like a terrible human being. Yeah, and he was he was married to Plath, correct? He was, um, and he got remarried, um, and people don't realize that his second wife killed herself in the same way Plath did, but instead of what, oh, like, what, shit. yeah, what, instead of doing what Plath did, which was protect the children, she killed their kids, too, um, and then, you know, I've always, I was wondered for years, like, well, what was the deal, and then um, their Plath and Hughes' son committed suicide recently too. So it's like anybody connected to, to Ted Hughes Holy shit. killed themselves essentially. And it's like, what kind of psychopath must that man have been? Holy and God I don't care damn. what kind of good turn of phrase you make. I don't want to read your work if you're killing people. Yeah. Fuck me. God. I, right. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I, well, shit, I have to go research that because, I had no fucking. I mean, I know, I knew, like Plath and Hughes's relationship to a degree, but I had no idea about the fucking rest of that. Jesus yeah, it's Christ. it's crazy, um, you know. And I, I mean, I think he died pretty horrifically of like a lung, uh, liver cancer, maybe. But um, mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm still too angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like. So, were you? So when I was going through undergrad, there was a lot of to do about like, you know, the author is dead and divorcing the work from the, the artist and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I, I have gotten the sense, I mean, I've been out of schooling for the better part of a decade, um, but I've gotten the sense that there has been a sort of like turning of the tides on that whole idea of like completely divorcing the, the art from the artist. Um. um it comes in and out of fashion to be honest with you okay. uh, one of the things that we're seeing right now with this whole explosion of the cancel culture um is that people are starting to be held responsible for certain things mm-hmm. so like with all this within the last few years with sermon and alexi um where he got kind of eviscerated over the coals because of his treatment of women right because mm-hmm. he been touted as the native american scholar that was everybody wanted to publish everybody wanted to read right um, and he kind of fell from grace and even year before last at AWP when they released Native Voices, that, that great collection of indigenous works, um, he was not included in it at all. Um, so he's he's been kind of quote unquote canceled. Um, and, you know, they're in some ways, it's like it's nice that people are being held accountable for their their actions because, mm-hmm. you know, people like Hughes, people like Ezra Pound, people just with some terrible, terrible mindsets are immortalized um where just as talented poets who work just as hard are are not going to hit that literary canon um so in some ways i think it's great but in other ways i think people are are gonna kind of we got to be careful not to throw the baby out with a bath you know um Mm. and so i don't know i don't know what the answer is i just kind of hope that i'm not living too drastically that would hurt people in a way that will ever get myself (laughs) canceled um but uh also trying not to scare yourself into silence either so it's a it's a weird time to be a poet i think yeah yeah i because i like i mean i think like with with most other things um i mean even like the um i feel like this this may bleed this may this conversation could bleed into the discussion of um 
like the removal of Confederate monuments. Um, well, quote unquote Confederate monuments, you know, like monuments that were erected in the early like, yeah. 1900s or like 1940s to 60s to commemorate uh, white, quote unquote, white Southern culture. Anyway, um, but the idea of that there is a there is a way that you can present these things with a certain context or a certain situation in the circumstance um, so that you are not removing these things wholesale and like blotting out this aspect of um, like history or like our collective historical experience, but re I guess like reassessing how it's presented in, in that uh, in that dialogue or in that public discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I'm, sure that you saw the like trump's uh columbus day um release from the white house um yeah but and like in that that shit or that idea of like you know yes columbus was was a you know touted as a you know like this this italian explorer and this this discoverer and might have a, a hold a, a particular place of, of prominence in that particular culture, but you know, it's like you can't like the the ability for people to look back on historical things and to like to be to hold them accountable for shit. That's like, oh yeah, well, you, it's like, oh, it was different times then. It's like, well, that doesn't make a fucking difference if you, if you genocide a bunch of people. Like that's exactly. a, that was objectively wrong then just because people didn't think that it was doesn't change the fact that it's like, that's not a thing that you fucking do, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And to like, to re, to re phrase it. Cause, and also in, in that sense, that's like, you get the um, like Columbus day is, as being touted as it is, is a very like European white centric or like um, ethno centric way of viewing the world, and like very colonialist and very imperialistic way of, viewing the world it's like oh well columbus it brought this like paved the way for the for modern culture to happen in the americas and it's like well i mean yeah he did but that's not necessarily a good thing and he had he did it to the detriment of a massive fucking genocide of people who were already fucking here you know that like were invaded and conquered and displaced um and that, you know, like the, the reckon, and I, I feel like that's, I mean, not uniquely an American thing, but is, is very, uh, like, is, is baked into the American psyche, I think, of, of not dealing with the shit that Americans in America has done, um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's like you, you view it as like, oh, we're the, the bastions of freedom. We're the, the policemen of the world. We're champions of democracy and all these, you know, all these wonderful things and all, you know, American exceptionalism and blah, 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 blah. And there's like, if you, if you build your entire cultural and national um, identity around these things, there's not a whole lot of room for really critical analysis of like, oh, no, we did some really fucked up shit. And, exactly and like we've we've never come to grips with it we've ne- we've never addressed these things and by never addressing these things there's like you can never learn from it because there's never been an open honest sort of reckoning with like oh no 
these things we did were terrible. And, you know, like, it's the the idea of, of like, someone being canceled and they're like, well, do they have any, do they get more opportunities? It's like, well, maybe if they prove themselves that they have changed and they've thought critically about their what they've done and they've worked to, like, gain back the trust of the community and the people that they've hurt, that, you know, they may never be, they may never get that trust again from certain people, but it's like if they're, if they're putting in the work to be better and to, to, like, they, they, they take the responsibility of their actions, they hold themselves accountable, they, they pay whatever penance they need to pay, and they, they work on being better and addressing these things and, you know, like, trying to change, then, yeah, okay, maybe we can get, I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, Oh, no, I think I think you're getting at one of the most important things is that the idea, you know, I, I tell my students um, learning is uncomfortable. Um, so, I mean, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not pushing yourselves outside your boundaries. You're not pushing yourself to see things in a different light and a yeah. different perspective. And that's the thing is like, you know, if somebody when you get called out on something, it is uncomfortable and oh, you yeah. have two options to do it. Like, hey, you know either be nicer or step it up or you want to rage and pretend like this is the right thing to do. Um, and you know, I, I, I think that's one of the most important things that we can do is hold each other accountable. Um, oh, so yeah. yeah. And I, I think that there was something through some, some things that I've been seeing that have been popping up on like Instagram and some other places the, about the, I, I'm probably going to butcher this, but the idea of like, that like people don't, deserve or it's like the the idea that like the, the the do people deserve second chances versus do they need to like earn their earn that second chance or like they're they're given the opportunity for the second chance but it's up to them to like actually step up and do what they need to do to 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 earn i'm absolutely uh, yeah no i, I yeah, i'm with you 100 percent. you know if they're not willing to change then there's no no point of uncanceling <laughs> so. yeah and then and, and the idea of like the because i i think that like I feel like cancel culture is the the um, uh, the pro life spin on this. That it's not it's not cancel culture. It's being held accountable for shit. And if being held accountable for stuff tanks your your public life, like then if you, you needed to change that in the first place. Right, yeah, yeah. Then it's like you should have you should not have been put like if there is something that that you have done in your past that you have not you know, like taken account for, or, you know, like, cause I feel like there's a difference between, you know, like a, a teenager, you know, like finding somebody posting something, some shit on Twitter from back when they were like 17 or 16, you know, it's like, I did plenty enough shit when I was 16 or 17 or 15, whatever that, you know, like I'm embarrassed of. And I regret that if it came to light, to be like, Oh shit. Yeah. I was that person. But like, you know, I'm not that person anymore. That's a, that's very different than someone like Sherman Alexi or, you know, fucking Harvey Weinstein or like yeah. Epstein, you know, like any of these people that it's, it's not something that you could chalk up to like, Oh, this is a, you know, like them being just dumb and ignorant and, you know, like a typical, maybe not typical young person, but you know, like how, how a lot of young people probably are um, because they think they know everything and, they have not had the life experiences to back up that claim. Um, but if, you know, it's like if it's systematic behavioral stuff that has been happening for years and years and years and it comes out and your life is tanked because of that, like 
it probably should have been tanked because of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it, it feels like it's this weird spin of, you know, it's like they're not being canceled. They're just being held accountable for their actions. Cause I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's like a very like, like cis het masculine response to someone calling out someone else to be held accountable for their actions. It's like, Oh, you're canceling me. It's like, no dude, you just, you gotta deal with like, you can't deal with this shit and expect no repercussions. Right. Um, you know, I mean, aside from the fact that the society that we've sort of crafted in the United States is, is lend itself towards people like that, not facing repercussions. Um, but yeah, yeah, Ugh, I don't, I don't, uh, <laughs> I think in an interesting way, I think that the discussion or the like learning and being challenged and being asked to step into someone else's experience or step into some other way, someone else's way of seeing things, um, I think might be why poetry is in a weird, like, like there's, it's not, it's not in a place of prominence in American culture, like at all, you know? Um, and I, th- I think it's because poetry is, is a direct act of inviting someone else to stand in your experience and your truth and to see things from your eyes and that can be a really, really uncomfortable experience. And it requires people to think deeply about stuff, think critically about things, sit with stuff that might make them, you know, it's like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm wrestling with some deep things. And, like, I feel like, by and large, Americans don't, don't want to do that, you know? Well, um, I think part of it, yeah, um, is, is there, there's the movement toward where we, we don't have the same attention span or the attention span has changed significantly. Um, but I think also part of it is poets themselves, we've become a very insular group. We are marketing mm. most of our things to each other. And, um, you know, I don't see a lot of community-based poetry events or, um, you know, if you do see them, there's typically the academic poet who will be quick to say, hey, that's not as good as what we're doing over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, it's like, I think a lot of that is just, you know, everybody's scared right now and everybody's trying to hold on to their little piece of the pies because, you know, they don't want to you know, lose everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, if we, if we don't work together in this, we're, we're not going to get back to mainstream. I think back like on how Ginsburg brought poetry back from obscurity, essentially, you know, I mean, with his screaming howl that got everybody to pay attention. And it's like, that's, that's what we need right now. We need somebody who's going to take the risks and, and make it matter to larger groups right now. Yeah. I just, yeah. Cause when you, when you were talking about that, I was, I was thinking about the, the very clear, at least in what I've experienced, clear split between like academic poetry and like spoken word poetry or, um, you know, like, um, slam poetry that type, you know, it's like that there is a very clear delineation between, um, between those those modes of expression and the almost like the necessity to to separate them out um and you know probably the unsurprising fact that at least in the united states like a lot of slam and spoken word poets are like people of color exactly you know it gets down to a racial divide right yeah or like classist or Mm -hmm. you know like whatever and then most of the academic poets are 
you know, like white, usually white men. Um, yeah, but hmm. yeah, I never, I get, I never, I think that I saw that distinction, but I never really put it into that that sort of like the the insularness and the the division and the sort of like oh no we have to protect like we have to protect the canon we have to protect you know like what p poetry with a capital p and italicized is right and it's like oh man if you cap all of your lines you must be a juvenile poet and no you if you center a poem my goodness how dare you and it's like <laughs> oh gosh i do a lot of these things out of obstinance in my narrative poetry and again it's working with an editor who understands that i'm trying to like poke fun at these like arbitrary rules yeah um but it's uh they're they're frustrating to come up against and it's you know i think we have to figure out a way to make ourselves relevant to the larger community instead of thumbing our nose and being like you don't get us we're too deep it's like no how about we say something that matters regardless if you're deep or not you know yeah. um well, that was a, yeah I, that's a I, there's a um there's a book that I've I've used as a reference on uh, like past episodes. Um, uh, have you have you read uh, Why Poetry by Matthew Zabruder? I have not. It's it's a really I feel I've made it like halfway through that book twice, and then I always get distracted by something else. But the <laughs> at least the first half of the book is really um, eye opening in the ways like I feel like he does a discussion of like you know like the the relationship that people have about or that like non-poets quote-unquote non-poets have to people that profess to be a poet or you know it's like the 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 level of like by and large the average person thinks that poetry is this like enigma or riddle that needs to be solved um or that there's like some deeper meaning or some sort of like hidden truth to it um, and not the fact that like, no, it's just like, if you, if you have felt things in your life, like if you've experienced emotions, you're qualified to, to critique a poem. I mean, maybe not to the extent of like, oh, like, is this image doing the work that it needs to do in this particular stanza? Or, um, you know, like, is this, is this poem or this collection acting as a cohesive arc from point A to point B, you know, whatever, but just as like the moment to moment experience of a poem it's like if you i feel like just being alive gives you a lot of um a lot of authority to say whether or not like you connect with a poem and like that's kind of that's I, what it boils down to it's like that's what it is it is that's the point if i read a poem and at the end of it i don't like feel something then i that is not a good poem to me you yeah. know oh yeah and it, I mean, I don't care if it's feeling something like I want to get up and throw a chair through a window or if I want to just like go find somebody and kiss a stranger on the street. Like I, I but I want to be moved. I want to yes. have an urgency at the end of that poem. Yes. And even if it's just an urgency to go get a hammock and, and be in that hammock for a little while, you know, like it's just got to make me want to do it. Yes. Oh, yeah. I 100% I agree. I was actually talking. Um, I had like an editing uh, session with an, uh, somebody who I'm going to be publishing sometime in 2021. Um, and we were talking about just like the nature of poetry and, and like feeling stuff. And this is this is a one point where I was kind of ragging on um, Instagram poetry that by and large, like I don't whenever I the time the times that I've read Instagram poetry or quote unquote Instagram poetry stuff that that looks and feels like that um, that sort of genre. Um, I don't when I, I don't I'm not left like feeling anything. It's just, it's sort of like, 
it's not even neutral. It's just that like it, it feels like it would it hit me and it like washed over me and then it didn't leave any sort of impression on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, I don't, I can't, I can't hang with poetry like that because, like, if other people can, that's cool. Like, if if it makes you one, if it makes you feel shit deeply, that's great. Two, if it like if it doesn't, but you still enjoy it and it does other things for you, that's fantastic. But for me personally, like, I want to be like gut punched in the heart by the time that I'm done reading a poem. Absolutely. Um, you know, like I, I want to like, yeah, like you said, it's like, I want to be left feeling something deeply. Um, you know, I want to feel like I've had the wind knocked out of me by the time I get done with a poem or even like in the middle of a poem, there's this, this image that pops up and you're like, Oh my God, damn. Okay. I gotta, I gotta sit with this for a second. Um, I'm reading. Oh, um, there's a collection that I was reading this morning while I was hanging out with my partner that there are a couple moments in it. I was like, oh my God, damn, this image. Um, but yeah, I feel like for me personally, if I were to give my poetry to someone and they read it and their response was, eh, that would be devastating to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. But... But I, I feel like that goes back to kind of what we were talking about that I, like in order to in order to feel deeply, it's like you really have to be willing to open up and let yourself be affected in that way or let yourself be um, like drawn into this other person's experience. Um, and I don't know, like I there's a um, there's a guest editor position open at poetry um the poetry foundation right now and they have a couple of questions um that i've been thinking about sort of you know like you know like how do we how do we grow the engagement of poetry both the magazine and in general i'm like fuck i don't i honestly don't know like i don't i don't know how to how to make something that that people feel is is trivial or or over sensationalized or too emotional like how do you how do you draw people into that well, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the, the blended arts and um, mm. you know, how do we lean on each other without erasing us? You know, um, most poetry readings that I go to, there's this sharp divide about, you know, songwriting. That's not what we do. You have songwriters night and then you have poetry night. And it makes sense because typically what happens is it starts as a poetry night and then it ends up as everybody's singing, you know, Freebird covers. <laughs> And, um, you know, the poetry aspects disappeared. Um, But there's got to be some organic way. And I've been going back to what they did at Black Mountain and studying how they brought everybody together to just celebrate the arts. Um, Mm. And I I just kind of wonder, could we do something like that again? And the biggest roadblock that I have is funding. How do you fund a project like that? And that Mm. was their problem, ultimately, what buried them. And then the the second biggest thing is how do you keep it from being so classist? Because yeah. right now, even in our, our PhD programs and our MFA programs, you see that classism happening again because, you know, blue collar people can't even get through the door of college or they're being brought up in environments where in, in the anti-intellectualism stigmas are preventing them from even trying to go down these roads in the first place. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we try to erase class when we're in one of the biggest class divides this nation's ever seen. 
I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, anytime I try to have an idea, it just gets shot down by something else. <laughs> so yeah. I think the biggest thing that we can do right now is just keep, keep being artistic, keep writing, keep whatever, and keep painting and singing. Just, I think that kind of celebration is, is an act of resistance in this type of political climate. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and I think that kind of going back to, to like the, the Sherman Alexi thing that like, you know, he was, he was sort of like the, um, like native indigenous poet. Um, but well, he was the go-to, I right, mean, yes. there were plenty of other ones. Right. Yeah. That so he, he was the, the more like the most well-known that, yeah, like the go-to. And when like that star falls, um, it was something I, I've been listening to, um, the podcast Fanti um, from Maximum Fun, which is just an absolutely amazing podcast. But they were, in one of their episodes, they were talking about um, like representation in, in media for, um, for like black, black folks. And they were saying that, you know, like there, it's, the idea is to, to get to a point where there is enough uh, representation of like black people or, or uh, like people of color or you know like genderqueer like lesbian gay whatever so that when one of when someone like that shows up in a show one it's like because they are are like a person of color or like you know gay or genderqueer or whatever it's not a defining aspect of their character and two that if like if you don't like them as an actor or don't like that part, you you don't have that sense of um, like oh well I, I have to like it because this is like the only you know like trans person of color that's in this particular medium you know like you can you can have it so that you, like with Sherman like you know it's like there are other native and indigenous voices of people that you can other poets that you can you know, like hang your stars on and it doesn't have to be this, this one sort of monolithic person that is supposed to be representation and the representational of, and the voice of all of these disparate people. Right. Um, and I, I feel like in, in a way the, like the decolonization of the canon um, would be like a really amazing way to maybe deal with some of the, like the class issues or the, um, like the, I guess, like academic snobbery that you can bring in poets and voices and people that are doing a ton of different things and have it show it's like these are these are people that are all exceptional in the work that they do. Um, you know, just because they're not writing like Frost or they're not writing like Ginsberg doesn't mean that they are any less than them. Um, you know, it's like they're doing something different and they are exceptional in this other thing that they do. And I, you know, like that could give to, to have, to be, ex to be exposed to like the widest breadth possible of, of other, of, of poets doing poetry and all the different forms and formats and ways that that can happen, you know, could remove that power from the like, Oh no, poetry has to be this. You know, it's like yeah. if, if there are people that are that are capping every line or doing in rhymes or, you know, like writing sonnets in a very traditional sense, it's like, that's that's great. Or like center justifying poems. Fucking whatever, man. Like if exactly. it's if it's a good poem and the, the you know, like if the, the poet is is excels at their craft, 
fucking I will whatever. It might not be my cup of tea, but I will fucking champion the shit out of it. Well, and see, that's that's some of the things that I think we have to change within the creative writing pedagogy, right? Because Donald Hall has been championing this as with the whole Mick poem, right? Um, and the idea that the poems are made to order in MFA programs because they all follow the same patterns. They all do the same things. The individual voice is lost to this academic poet machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes just something you order from McDonald's. <laughs> here's your here's your Mick poem for today. Yeah, that, I, that, I don't know... I don't know how true this actually is, but you saying that the first thing that I thought of was the uh, Iowa's writing, Iowa's writers, no, Iowa writers workshop, Mm -hmm. um, which throughout my MFA was the sort of like stand in for that, that type of like very institutionalized academic voice of poetry. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it still is like that. Um, I don't know if, if they've, if there's any, like if they've made a, institutional changes since when I was in the MFA and people were po- poking fun at him for that and, and dragging him for it. But yeah. Oh, it's, it's not just the one it's, oh, it's yeah. across the board. <laughs> so we're all getting looked at pretty harshly. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I never, I never really, I guess, put that together that the ways that you sort of perpetuate those ideas or those standards or those modes of, of, like experiencing and writing poetry is the sort of fundamental gatekeeping that like higher education has become Mm -hmm. Um, that either, you know, like you have to be of a certain academic stellar performance ship that you get a scholarship that you are then beholden to. You're an athlete or you accrue, you know, like thousands and thousands of dollars in debt that then is you know like can fundamentally change your trajectory of the university if if you know that like oh shit well you know am i am i going to follow a passion that i have knowing that it will take me like decades to pay this thing back or do i like jump ship to something that i can you know is more lucrative for me that i could pay this back sooner well Um, yeah and i mean i think you also have to think about the job market post just getting the degree um, yeah. because that has changed so drastically and dramatically, you know, um, even salaries are what professors are worth. I mean, I owe more on my student loans than I owe on my house. Um, g- genuinely, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it is, um, it's a, it's a thing. And we have to start thinking about the ethics of what we do and how we're doing it. Um, oh, yeah. because the whole business model of education has really, um, kind of, I don't know, disillusioned a lot of uh, would-be academics otherwise. And what is the purpose of the academy? Is it just, just train people for jobs? And if that's the case, then why are we accepting them so so many numbers into the humanities? Right. Um, but Or is it to, to build their minds into open understanding? Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like academia right now is, is, a, is a place that is uh, struggling to find its identity. Oh, yeah. Um, and I know a lot of really fantastic scholars who are, frustrated and jumping ship, um, trying to find things in nonprofits and starting their own companies. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the future looks like for academia, but I know it has to be different than where it is now. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that like, it really, it sucks that the millennial generation, um, is the sort of, I guess, like tip of the spear with a lot of these issues. I mean, because it, it feels like it's the same stuff. I mean, it's all connected with, you know, like housing and 
you know, like owning a car and where you live and, and the job market and all these things are, are part of like aspects of these sort of deeper seated issues that haven't really changed since like the seventies and eighties. And it's like, it, you know, like the world has changed and these things can't operate the ways that they've been operating, but no one wants to come in and be like, you know, we, we, this can't, this is unsustainable. Um, right. Yeah. Cause and thinking that, you know, like, my like my dad my parents graduated from UNO um with um like BAs in engineering and then I'm not sure how quickly after um they graduated but you know like they got jobs um my dad got a job at the like the um the Louisiana like power company and my mom wound up working for Lockheed Martin um and like you can't it may be in certain circumstances and certain uh, really specific moments could students do that. But, you know, it's like most places want an MFA or even a PhD to even be considered a, um, a competitive candidate for that position. Um, right. And then you, so, and then you have all these people that get, go to these programs and then you flood the market with, you know, just, people that know it's like well i'm you know i can't do this thing until i get the schooling but i i don't now that i'm free from the schooling all of these jobs are like oh well you know you need to have at least a year or two experience for the entry-level position that they can't get because they were in school or they can't get because they can't get hired to the the position but they can't get hired to the position because they don't have the experience for it you know like that weird sort of cyclical like clusterfuck Um, yeah 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 i i am i'm very grateful that i i work in a um a job market or a i'm i work in as a career i have as a career it's something that is totally divorced from when i went to school for um Mm -hmm. i mean it sucks because i spent like almost more than half of my well maybe about half of my life um studying this thing or you know like this this humanities and writing and creative writing and editing and you know like i would like to be able to do something with that with the time that i that i invested in in the schooling but you know like i'm grateful that people people will always need to renovate their homes and they'll want places to put shit so being a cabinet maker is pretty fucking lucrative right now Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's just, it's, it sucks. I mean, it's, I, there are a lot of times that I'm, I'm like, you know, I really, I wish that I, I mean, aside from like running the press, but there's not really another outlet that I have to like, to utilize the fact that I've, I've studied poetry for like eight years, you know? Yeah. Well, that is something that, I mean, I think everybody has a side hustle right now. I mean, I, I don't think I know even most professors, uh, I know that they're working on, on having their own businesses, uh, running, um, let's see bakeries and, uh, all sorts of different like companies that people are starting just to do things on the side, uh, to, to, to have income. And I think that's all coming because we are in these late stages of capitalism and um, nobody's got enough resources to survive on their own anymore. Um, so you do see people kind of turning away from their passions. Yeah. And um, it's, it's such a weird, like, the position that 
you know, like the worker really has all of the power in a relationship between the worker and an, an employer. Because if the worker doesn't work, the employer can't do whatever it is that they, their business is. But yet, you know, there is so much, like so much of that, that power, that understanding has been siphoned away from the employee and has been given to the employer. And now, you know, it's like you have people that instead of being able to, to pursue things that they're passionate about, in which case that they will, you know, they're willing to, they'll be willing to put in extra hours or do, you know, like the shit work if it's something that they really are, they love. You know, it's like, I don't dislike binding books, but sometimes it's really fucking monotonous to sit on my floor and stitch, you know, like 60 books in a week. Mm -hmm. um, but I do it because I fucking love books i love publishing i i love you know i love the things that i've created and i i want people to experience them that make that brings me a lot of joy so i'm willing to put up with you know like the less glamorous aspects of or you know like even like not not saying that i i wasn't there wasn't a satisfaction of uh erasing trump's speeches but just like that took me a long fucking time yeah, just, sorry about that. No, I really no, thought no. It was <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's but just that the I, you know, like there are, there are less glamorous aspects to like any anything that you do. You know, it's like it's it's the work, it's the the churn that you have to do. That you know, it's like it's just. I mean, even even making cabinets, there are days that I'll spend just milling sides of cabinets and or just sanding stuff, and it can get real old real quick, but. You know, it's like, it's just, those are the, that's an aspect of the job that you just have to do. And if you, if you, if that's something that you actively enjoy doing, um, or like a career path that you actively want to pursue, you're willing to kind of put up within reason with those things. Um, as opposed to people that just like, it becomes the slog and that's, you know, like, they only can exist really for themselves and exist as themselves outside of, you know, like whatever time that they get outside of the 40 hours a week that they work, even sometimes more than that, especially fucking teachers, you know, with like all of the outside of class work that they have to do, mm -hmm. um, that they are either not compensated for or compensated for really, really, really shittily. Um, but yeah, I, that like i'm really enamored with the idea of like a universal basic income it's like you just like give people what they need that if they had nothing else they could survive and then see what they do cuz i feel like there's a there's a like opponents of that view or that of of that plan or, or opponents of universal basic income i think fundamentally think that people are lazy and good for nothing and if given the option to not work they won't work which yeah. like to a degree i agree with them if the job that they have is a job that they're forced to have in order to pay for shit you know like to to barely survive as opposed to like oh hey i'm really passionate about this this obscure thing now that i have my basic needs met i can spend the time to like develop that interest and then maybe that will be a thing that will you know like i'm really enamored or i love poet i love photography but i can't you know i can't spend any time doing that because i have to have this job and pay back my student loans but if i could just live if i just had the basic income it's like oh maybe i can like i could take online classes about photography and eventually like i'm gonna open up my own studio or i'm gonna be freelance or you know whatever it could lead them it could lead them any number of places um 
because I, I think that fundamentally it's like people want to do stuff. I mean, they might take, you know, like a month, like summer, summer break was always that for me. It's, you know, it's like those couple of weeks after school started before summer camp. It was just nice to decompress and not do anything, but it's like, I think it's really fucking boring after a while, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've been, <laughs> I feel like we've been taking up a lot of air in this conversation. Um, um, so there is a question that I typically ask all of my guests um, that I'm really, really curious to, if you have an answer for. Um, and the question is, if, the, if you have the vocabulary to describe it, what is your internal landscape like? Okay. So am I allowed to say that I got this question before? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, okay. Yeah, so I mean, if, for those of you who, don't li- who are new to the podcast or haven't listened in a while, um, I usually send out like, a, I don't know, there's like, a packet of, of questions just to my guests to kind of get them in the mood of writing poetry that I may or may not lean on during the actual conversation with the exception of this one particular question, because after the, I asked it for the first time and the person responded with a answer that I had was like totally fundamentally unprepared for. Um, this is one of my favorite things to ask people. So no, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, if the fact that you've had some time to think about it as is is better than just me springing it on people because most of the time they're like I uh, um, uh, well, um. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do want to just back up and say when I got the packet and I saw this question, I text one of my um, my very good academic fans or friends who's not in our field, um, and you know I was like, well, how do we even? How, this is a delicious question, but I don't even know where to start. You know and um, you know, the only person I could think of with an internal landscape that off the top of my head was Hannibal Lecter. And my buddy was very concerned, like, do you see yourself as Hannibal Lecter? And he was like, no, no, not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so if, if they're listening, I do want to say something uh, to the end of, yes, I've thought about this question a lot. And, um, and I still think it's delicious. Uh, my internal landscape, I would think, is, um, you know, like when you're driving down the highway and you see one of those... Um, old homesteads that's just you could tell that in its heyday it was absolutely stunning and there's a lot of um garbage and things growing not garbage but like vines and uh it's being kind of starting to be reclaimed by the land and um there are a bunch of no no trespassing and um trespassers will be shot on site blah 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 there are a bunch of those types of signs outside but once you get inside it's just this beautiful mix of something that somebody spent so long on crafting and caring for and it's being simultaneously destroyed and enhanced by nature kind of twisting its way through and none of the doors are locked and and i think that's my internal landscape is try to scare people off with leather jackets and a foul mouth because once they get actually in to your interior everything's open <laughs> mm. so it's interesting that you mentioned that because there is a um there's a whole long story of how I, I got to know this particular person, um, which I can regale you with, or I can save it for another, another time. But, um, he did a series of landscape photographs called becoming silhouettes where he photographed, um, like old farmhouses in Ontario. Um, Oh no, sorry. Uh, um, so the tag or the little um, blurb for this is a portrait series documenting the remnants of once hardworking farms and uh, warm homesteads of the Alberta and Saskatchewan prairie. 
Oh, wow. Uh, the vast landscape echoes the loneliness of this harsh environment, or, um, sorry, the vast landscape echoes the loneliness that this harsh environment can be, uh, or can be, um, as these structures are slowly being swallowed by the very land that, that gave them life. Um, and I'm going to drop the link into our chat so that you can check them out. But as soon as you started describing the landscape, these are the images that came to mind for me. Oh, great, yeah. And the, the photographer's name is Christopher Schofield, and I'll, I'll put a, a link to these in the description. Um, yeah, yeah, this is, this is absolutely what I'm talking about. Um. So are you, like, do you, hmm. I'm trying to think of a, of a way to ask this question. Um, would you say that the the house is you, or do you feel like you were distinct from the building that is the like that is populating your landscape? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I think it's simultaneously both um, because I think in some ways that of course the house is me um, with the openness once you get past my defense mechanisms mm -hmm. but in other ways I feel like I occupy the space because uh, I can be right much of a people pleaser and so you know with a house that is elegant like that and um, you can grab all of your darkness and you can show shove it in another room and be like look how pristine and, and classy I am um, while not showing the other room. Whereas if you're talking to somebody who is dark and twisty, you can be like, look at all of this mess that is just all in this <laughs> one room. Um, so you can present yourself in many different ways. Um, but I guess uh, the ultimate goal is to see somebody or to find people or readers who can appreciate the, the complexity of all of it working simultaneously together. Yeah. Because that, that feels similar to I guess like my experience with my own internal landscape that there are times that I feel like I am the landscape. It feels like there are times that I am like walking through that landscape and it, other times it feels like I am watching a sort of like avatar of myself walk through that landscape. Um, yeah. And it's, it's weird. The, like the levels of, I guess like internal connectedness and like connectiveness that I feel with myself kind of determines the degree of like how much um, representation the landscape is directly of me versus if I'm just sort of like hanging out in the landscape. Um, hmm. Is there, um, is there like a particular place that you think that you feel like this house is like a like a the certain like the, i guess the surrounding landscape is is that a like a, a specific uh environment for you or is it sort of just like a nebulous you know like it's just it's in the woods like in the ruralness area somewhere just being reclaimed by whatever nature is around it or does it change um for right now i i would say it's just kind of nebulous in the woods um you know it's a uh... It doesn't have to be noticed at all times. I think sometimes it might move, you know? Sometimes I might want to put this this area right on the middle of a highway, be like, look at me, but don't, uh, you know? Um, 
<laughs> and other times I want to put it like back behind several swamps with, you know, hundreds of gators, like really don't come in here. Um, and I think it just depends on, on where I am. And I guess right now I would say that I'm, I'm trying to pull some of the vines down a little bit and maybe mow the lawn so people can be a little less threatened than, <laughs> than normal, but. I, I appreciate that. I also have something, a follow-up that has absolutely nothing to do with your internal landscape. Sure. Um, do you have alligators in Arkansas? Sometimes. Um, we don't seem to have them anywhere near the frequency that you guys do down, or that we did down in Louisiana. Okay. Um, but uh, there are some that will pop up and they, they get all excited like, oh, look at this big one. And, you know, it's just enough. You know, I used to be a big kayaker and um, big river person in, in Virginia. I used to even teach kayaking to a bunch of kids. Oh, sure. uh, and then when I moved down to um, Louisiana, I stopped doing any kind of water-related <laughs> activities. Like, I'm not dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so here I have started kayaking slowly again, but then my back has decided to start its thing. So, mm. so not so much with the physical activity right now, but um, hoping I can get back to kayaking soon. Yeah, that's... Um... That's one of the, one of the like th three things. Yeah, I guess like three things um, that is still, I've not really gotten a, a handle on being in Baltimore. Um, mm. So one is basements. That is a yes. still a wholly new concept for me. <laughs> um, the second is like varying um, typography of the ground. You know, mm -hmm. there are like hills in Baltimore that you can actually like, you know, um, some streets you can be on the top of and like, like look down the hill into the harbor. Not used to that. Um, <laughs> and the third is the fact that there are tons of bodies of water around here, you know, like lakes and stuff that there is absolutely no chance that there are any gators in, which yeah. is a weird thing to be like, oh, I could just go walk into this. I mean, there might be snapping turtles and snakes and shit, but like... There no, there's like no prehistoric monster that might eat you <laughs> yeah. as opposed to going to like Jean Lafitte National Park, like south of, uh, of New Orleans and, you know, like taking a step on the trail and like, oh, there's a gator. Oh, there's a gator. Oh, there's like two gators over there. Oh, shit. There's like three gators over there. It's it's a, it's such a I was walking around. A, um, I was on a walk with a friend around uh, some friends around a lake a couple weekends ago. And I was like, I was struck suddenly because they were pointing out like their uh, turtle watching and stuff. And I was like, holy shit, there are no alligators here. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. There are no yeah. alligators anywhere in, in Maryland. I was like that, that, oh, that like, it makes me uncomfortable the fact that they're, that they're not around, despite the fact that I definitely would not want them around. <laughs> um, uh, okay. I'm, I'm glad that our, our experience with gators is, <laughs> or that you were in Louisiana enough to have that, that appreciation of like, oh no, I'm not going to like, no, you can't get me to go next to the canal. There's no fucking way. You don't know what's in there. And by exactly. you don't know, you don't know what's in there is code for like, there could be alligators. Exactly. Everywhere. <laughs> Um, okay. And I have, I have one last question for you. Um, do you have a question for me? 
Oh man, I should have should have asked one. Uh, <laughs> and it, it can be. What they tell you in a job interview is never ever leave this blank. But <laughs> honestly, Michael, I'm sorry, I, I didn't prepare for this. No, that's cool. I mean, if there's like, it's open to whatever. So if there's like, even if there's something off off your dome piece that you were thinking of that you wanted to ask, um, if not, it's cool. I was just, I, I enjoy ending with with this question just because I feel like I do. <laughs> by and large, I do most of the question asking throughout these these conversations. But. Sure. Um, okay. So then I guess what I would ask you is what do you, cause we've talked a little bit about some of the, the problematic things with everything, but I want to end on a positive. Tell me what you like the most about being an editor and a publisher. Ooh, um, that's a really good question. I don't think anyone has asked me that before. <laughs> um, I think what I like the most about it is it, um, it pings a very particular part of me or like it engages a very particular part of me that I don't get to engage a lot. Um, and that is creating space for people. Um, it's actually one of the, the main reasons why uh, I think like music is as important to me as it is. Um, Cause I, I experience music on a very like emotional level and a very like spatial level. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if I'm feeling a thing, um, I will often times try to find music that is the, like the same emotional equivalent of it so that there is this, it really like I, when I, when I think of this, it feels like there is this er external space that I can sort of like unload my emotions into uh, or create that sort of flow to allow me to pr like to begin to process them. So they're not just all like banging around inside of me. I can like, I can put them someplace and get some like objectivity and some distance on them and sort of deal with them or even just let them like give them a, a passage to pass through me to, to wherever else that they go. Um, so the, the ability to create, to curate and create that sort of space for people is, is a really important thing for me. And I feel like I can do that um, fundamentally when I'm editing and um, publishing books. Cause you know, like I'm, more or less creating the physical incarnation of things that if they exist in a physical sense, it's only as words on a page. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like poetry by and large or writing in general, you know, like literary arts, arts for whatever. Um, I guess more so literary arts. It's like, it's, it's words and it's concepts and it's things that like, they can exist on a page, but they don't have to. You know, it's like they, they can exist in your head. They can exist on your phone. They can exist, you know, whatever. You could, you could read, uh, you know, like auditorily or sonically. Um, but to be able to have a, to be able to have the opportunity to create like the physical manifestation of these things and for every decision that I make in the, in the production of this book from like the editing to the design to the paper that I use to the size, you know, like all of it is is lending itself to a, a specific um, like reaction or experience that I want the reader to have when they, you know, like everything should be working towards the, the, um, the enhancement of the poetry or, you know, like the main conceits of the poetry or, you know, like whatever, like the, um, it's that everything should be working in cohesion or working in consort to, to give a sort of cohesive, um, 
reaction or to, to offer like a cohesive unit so that the poems, you know, it's like the smallest unit of this thing is no longer the poem or the manuscript, but the smallest unit of this thing is the book itself. Um, and it, it's just, it's really gratifying to be able to, to see like a manuscript and to get a manuscript and to edit it and to, to be able to like shove aside my ego and the ego of the, like the writer and really deal with these, these pieces as like, what is, what is like, where does this want to go? What does this want to be? And what do we need to do in order to get it there? And it's like, do we need to cut things? Do we need to add shit? Do we need to like, is it one, one verb in the entire poem that's just not hitting right. And if you change that verb, then everything will like lock into place. Um, and to just to like to to be um like to be trusted in that way because I, I always like growing up i was always like the confidant for people that it's like people would tell me shit that they would never tell anybody else i was allowed in like spaces that other people weren't allowed into just by the nature of you know like people trusted me and to be in that in that position with writing you know it's like things that people have spent you know, however many hours working on or even you know like with you and gag order like the years working on this thing and then to be to be entrusted with the not only the manuscript and the words but also to be entrusted with the vision of, of bringing this thing to life in a way um is really really gratifying and like fundamentally humbling in a way that i still can't really kind of get and the fact that like people want to be published by my press. Like people will come to me like Nadia. My, my friend was like, I have a book that I want you to publish. It's like, that's, it's astounding to me that, that, that I'm at a place now that like people actively seek me out to want to be published by me. Um, but yeah, I, I think fundamentally it's, it's that the, it's that I can, I can, in a way that I can't really do in my day-to-day -day life, I can actively create spaces for people, and then even readers too. You know, it's like you're you're creating a little um, like a little rest stop or a little uh, structure that people can just hang out in for however long that they're experiencing the book. Um, yeah, but that's that's a really it's a really um, gratifying position and to be in, and a really gratifying uh, work to do. That's great. Well, we really appreciate it. And you did a stunning <laughs> job on gag order. I swear when I got it out of the box, I was just like, I, woo. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's so much more like menacing. Like the cover is way more menacing than I, I thought that it would be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be the full eight by 10. And then like when it came out it was like, oh my gosh, or eight and a half by 11. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, when I, when I pulled it out there, it was like, oh man, this is great. <laughs> and it's, it's weird that like, that's another, it's another weird or interesting thing with like making books and stuff is that like, there's probably an infinite other number of ways that that book can be presented and that it can, it may not have the same hit as the, the like layout that I did in the design that I had. But, you know, it's like, I've seen tons of different covers for like Fahrenheit 451 and each one of them has like a little, like they all sort of, they're in the same emotional space and they convey the same information, but they choose to highlight, you know, it's like, it's because different people see different things and, in, in, in whatever, you know, like in the story and choose to highlight certain things. Um, but it's really, it's a weird, it's still a weird experience to, to design a thing and then get the physical copy. And you're like, 
yeah, I fucking nailed this. Like, this is exactly what this thing needs and wants to be right now. Um, I'm so happy. I'm so glad that we, we got the, like, the, um, we moved away from the, um, making it look like a, like, official government um, report. Yes, that would have been so boring. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, yes. Um, yeah, having, like, just that the silhouette of Trump just on the cover is just like, oh, it's so it's so gross, and it's so menacing, and I kind of love it, and I hate that I love it. Um, <laughs> well, I will tell you, um, you know, a few of my friends have gotten these out in the wild already, and um, they are sending me pictures of themselves with it and uh, or on tables. And the number one thing that I have gotten... Um, like they, they think is so unique is the uh, the about the author page uh, oh. where it's just it's all of the all of the hierarchy all of the you know what else have you done all of it just silence you know what what's the core of it is she writes poems you know that like was, it's just, that's so oh, such a great idea that was know? like when I when you sent me the when you sent me your bio and I, I put it in there and I was like, fuck, I, this needs to be redacted. And I, I found the, the Jessica Hilton writes poems. I was like, this is fuck. This is like absolutely perfect. Yeah. And especially matched with the, um, the author photo. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's just all came together really nicely. Yeah. This is like, I'm, that's, that's one of the other things that I'm, I guess, kind of grateful for. I'm not kind of grateful for that. I am grateful for, um, and there's a really positive thing with um, publishing is that like each book challenging challenges me to do something else. Um, Cause like the cover, that's the first time that I, I messed around in Photoshop in that way to get the, like the noise and the distortion in his mouth and to have the, like the layered images and all that stuff. And you know, like the first erasure thing that I did um, the first like large book that I've done um, like you know, like the size that it is, mm-hmm. um, that like each each one requires something different from you and requires or requires something different from me and requires me to like to be willing to be open to like whatever it is like to do whatever it is and to move wherever I need to be in order to to bring out like whatever intuitively I sense in in whatever book is you know that I'm, I'm dealing with and to to have that to really have that gratification when I know that I, I got it and I'm like, yes, this is like, this is what it needs to be. And this is like, and to, to have that, cause there's always that sense of uh, trepidation when I send like first drafts out to, um, like out to the writers that I'm working with is like, you know, th- it, do you feel like this is on the right track or, um, cause I always, I always want input from people or from the people that I'm working with. Um, and there are some times that I'm like really off the mark and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll get closer to it. But it's, it is really, it's terrifying and then instantly gratifying when I send something out and I'm like, fuck, I don't know about this. This is kind of what I felt. And it's like, I, I don't know. And to have somebody come back and be like, yes, this, exactly this. I'm like, yes, fucking got it. <laughs> nailed it. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm also grateful that people are willing to like take a chance on me because, like, I, it it's it feels weird that like I know that Akinoga Press has a certain aesthetic, but I can't really tell you what it is. But if you were to look at all the books, you're like, oh yeah, I can kind of get the get a sense of what this press is about. But it's also really cool that like it's a ton of really disparate books too. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some stuff coming up in 2021 that are really really exciting there's there are like 
two in particular that I'm, I'm super, super jazzed about. Um, but yeah, so, um, I think that's probably going to be it. Um, okay. thank you so much for spending fuck, almost, almost two hours. <laughs> talking. <laughs> um, I did not expect this to go this long. Um, but it's also like, it's really wonderful to actually be able to talk with you after having, uh, you know, a years long, um, email <laughs> correspondence. <laughs> Indeed. It really is. Um, yeah, but this is, this is really wonderful. Um, and as always for everyone listening, thank you so much. Um, I know that the, uh, episode 12 has been getting a lot of listens and I'm really, I'm grateful for that. Um, but yeah, do you have any, any, any final parting thoughts you'd like to give to the audience? Just thanks to anybody who's taken a chance on getting this book. It really means a lot. Um, uh, it's a labor of love and it means a lot that it's, it's that you're, you're taking a chance. So. Yeah. And I will, um, I will put a, uh, a link to gag order in the description. So, um, anybody that's interested in actually seeing what we've been talking about for the majority of this conversation, uh, can check it out and hopefully get it. Oh, and, um, for, People in the United States that are listening, please fucking vote. Um, <laughs> if you have to wait in line, I'm like, I know that that's a burden and a, a challenge and really fucking sucks. But please fucking vote, vote and vote against Trump, because um, he has done so many terrible things to the United States. And if he has four more years to do more shit, like, I, I, I honestly don't want to think about what will happen if four more years of him um so please vote vote early drop your mallet your ballot off in a in wherever it is that you can um and just, just fucking just vote against him get that piece of shit out of office please i'm begging you um and on that plea um <laughs> uh yeah if you people have it go read some poems read, read a poem today whatever whatever it is that you're doing stop now at the end of this podcast and go read a poem um, and I'll talk to you all next time.